Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Have you ever been asked such a big question that it really just knocks you off your feet? Questions like, will you marry me? That's certainly one that could sweep someone off his or her feet, isn't it? And how about, are you sure you want to go forward with that surgery? That too can knock off someone from their standing feet. Perhaps even literally, if that surgery somberly suggested by your endocrinologist happens to involve an amputation of one kind or another, and that's heavy duty. There are even those deeper questions that are major life changers, questions that entail a whole paradigm shift in your life. But they're the kind of questions that the average person tends to want to postpone, put off, defer down the road, maybe even drown out and dismiss altogether. These questions are maybe too philosophical or too deep, plain old too deep for comfort. Questions here would be like, what is the purpose in life? Why was I born at such a time and place as this? And of course, there's this big worldview question, what happens after I die? Well, as we heard from our gospel reading today, Jesus doesn't shy away from asking his disciples a doozy of a question, and one with far-reaching ramifications into eternity, in fact. It's so big that it seems like Jesus wants to sort of ramp up to it first before just dropping the full weight of his real question directly onto his disciples' laps. So he asks two questions then. His warm-up question is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now that's just a good question in and of itself. But it's also interesting that Jesus chooses this place that we find them in today, Caesarea Philippi, as the place to ask his disciples these, disciples these questions. By way of background, Philip, a tetrarch son of Herod the Great, had renamed this town after Caesar, Caesarea, possibly to score some loyalty points. They were always vying for uh, promotions. At any rate, there was already a Caesarea elsewhere, so this became known as Caesarea Philippi. Roman rulers were never shy about asserting themselves, were they? In fact, a number of Caesars, amidst the already expansive Roman pantheon of gods, some of which you remember, just look at our solar system, Jupiter, Neptune, Saturn, Mercury, Pluto, if that still counts. These are the Roman gods. And emperors were now being deified. Emperors Julius and Augustus were the first ones to take their place among the Roman gods. This imperial cult, as it was called, emperor worship, was quite at home here in this Galilean town of Caesarea Philippi. The town, incidentally, was formerly named Peneus, after the Greek god of nature, Pan. That's right, I'll bet you never had a reason before to look up the word panic, panic in the dictionary, because for one thing, that's the last thing you want to do if you're in the midst of a panic, right? Open a dictionary, that's not going to help, but we have time now, so 
give a listen to the Merriam-Webster dictionary entry for the word panic. Panic comes to us from French, panique. Of course, they're always from France. And it, in turn, derives from the Greek panikos, meaning literally of pan. Pan, the pipe-playing, nymph-chasing Greek god of fertility. And by virtue of that, also the god of pastures and flocks that you want to see multiply. And the god of shepherds. His name is a Doric contraction of pay on, meaning pasturer or shepherd. He also has a rather dark side, this Pan. Pan's shout is said to have instilled fear in the giants when they were fighting the gods. As well, the Greeks believed Pan responsible for causing the Persians to flee in terror at the Battle of Marathon. The word panic entered our language first as an adjective back in the 17th century, and it meant then the emotional state that Pan was able to induce. So who knew? You got that little panic attack due perhaps to a little demon on your shoulder whispering in your ear or maybe giving one of his notorious shouts, panic! At any rate, it was this scenic and very storied Gentile city, Caesarea Philippi, where we find Jesus having this discussion with the Twelve today. It probably also should be mentioned that this town was built largely on a giant rock tablet. So talking about rocks here was very natural. Finally, one last thing about Caesarea Philippi. Nearby in an off-visited site in the rock bed was one especially deep cavernous well. It's dry today, but back then it was so deep, estimated to be 800 feet deep, and it was so deep that they called it the Gates of Hades. There the Gentile pagans would make animal sacrifices to their gods, and the gods from the underworld were said to come up to the surface of earth from such deep, dark depths. So then with all this intriguing detail involving rocks and false gods, Caesarea Philippi was quite the backdrop for Jesus to pose his two questions regarding the various perceptions people had of him. Verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Even before the disciples start throwing out answers that they heard from both Gentiles and Jews, from both hostile and friendly sources, Jesus sort of front loads the question there that he's asking by using one of his favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man. Now that also merits a brief look. Where does that title, the Son of Man, come from? Please note, by Son of Man, Jesus is not simply saying that he's a human being who came from another human being, though he was and is that. No, that title, Son of Man, is heavily loaded from Scripture. I'm not sure just how aware the disciples were of this loaded title, but that term, Son of Man, like the term Anointed One, has been used in connection with other characters throughout the Old Testament, and not just Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was called the Lord's Anointed One. And you might recall God asking Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? 
The connection that Jesus is making with that term, however, comes specifically from the book of Daniel in chapter 7. We know this because Jesus quotes this portion of Holy Scripture to Caiaphas, the high priest, on the night in which he was betrayed. So in Matthew 26, the high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. How do you think Caiaphas took that? Uh, He wasn't going to like that blasphemous language. And sure enough, he tore his clothes as a sign of disgust and disdain. Here's the full powerful quote from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, This is Daniel speaking. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. So you can see that's quite a passage about uh, what rabbis have generally accepted to be a messianic passage, even though the word Messiah, or the Greek word for Messiah, Christ, is not even mentioned there. That's saying a lot about what the Jews wanted in a Messiah. What's more, some Orthodox Jewish rabbis today have gone even further with this passage in Daniel 7, and quite accurately too, we would agree. They're saying this passage is describing none other than a second divine person, being. So that there are two divine persons we must grapple with. Yes, these Orthodox Jews start throwing words around like binitarianism, the existence of two divine ones revealed in Holy Scripture. Lutheran theologians don't have any problem with this as far as the Daniel 7 passage goes. Truly, two divine persons are in view here, we would agree. But keep reading, we would say, and give us a call when you bump that two up to three divine persons. Then we'll talk some more about the Trinity. Trinitarianism. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So you can see how Jesus whether his disciples caught the Daniel 7 connection or not, Jesus nevertheless was front-loading his question when he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So to this first question, the disciples already have a lot to say, and they threw out names like, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, did you notice what the disciples did right there in their response? Who were Elijah and the others just mentioned that some believed Jesus to be? And what did they all have in common? Well, they were all prophets, right? Elijah, Jeremiah, and the last of the Old Testament prophets, as he is sometimes called, John the Baptist. So right here, flash back to that Daniel passage again briefly, that messianic passage, keep in mind. What kind of figure is presented there? 
in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, is worshipped and given an everlasting dominion. That's not a picture of a prophet, is it? Because I'm pretty sure John the Baptist would say, all that sounds a lot better than wearing itchy camel fur and eating locusts. So it's not a picture of a prophet, then what? It's more accurately a picture of one who rules and reigns. A king. Fair enough, a king. Many Jews in Jesus' time embraced that picture or that office of the Messiah. Glory, majesty, victory over our enemies, a triumphant Jewish conqueror. Yes, that was very much the kind of Messiah that first century Roman occupied Israel wanted. A conquering king. Luther would call those Bible scholars who look only for a conquering king, he would call them theologians of glory. A theologian of glory is not necessarily wrong. I mean, you can read it right there in Scripture, in Daniel 7, right? We just did. The all-powerful Son of Man coming in glory. No, it's not that these theologians of glory get the whole thing wrong as much as it is that they are ill-timed with it. They jump the gun. We Christians agree the king of glory is still visibly coming to earth, but that is his second coming, we would say. And Jesus said concerning the timing of that event, only the Father knows the day and the hour. But if our impatient sinful nature as it is, and if it had its way, we would cry, time's up, everybody. The whole world would have to just be judged, snip-snap, just like that. We would really want to jump to glory if we perceive the world as our enemies. But if our generation is ours to win for Christ, then it would mean extending the second coming of our Lord, extending Judgment Day. If not, and Judgment Day were held tomorrow, that's, we would call down wrath upon any loved ones or the countless million of lost souls who have not yet heard the gospel. That's if we were in charge and demanded an impatient jump to glory right now. Thankfully, the Lord ignores those pleas, and the steadfast love of God endures to all generations. An older and wiser St. Peter in his epistle, epistle puts it this way, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. That's our loving God. If we successfully restrain within ourselves our own inner theologian of glory, then we can see more clearly that the King of glory is already reigning through grace in his church right here and through the good news that's published the world over, against which the gates of Hades cannot stand. So through that gospel being published, God is still beckoning all sinners to come, repent, and receive. Receive the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for us, and yet another one of his office, offices he holds. One that we have not yet identified. We have Jesus as prophet, which many like Herod saw him as. Matter of fact, he even saw him as John Baptist, the prophet returning from the dead. So we have prophet, and we have Jesus as the Son of Man, the returning King of glory. So prophet, 
and king. Now this last office is the doozy. It's the doozy I alluded to earlier. We get to it by way of Jesus' big question, the question to rule all questions. Verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's response is impulsive and immortalized. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Sometimes you just have to blurt out the right answer, right? That's what Peter does. And boy, did Peter hit that one right on the head. And boy, also did Peter get rewarded by his master. His master heard the answer that he was looking for. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Woohoo, Peter! He must have felt like he was riding on the clouds, at least cloud nine on that one. Next week, on the heels of this very same passage, we'll see how Peter actually gave an answer that was way above his pay grade as he sets the record for the world's fastest turnaround rebuke from that same master of his. But it's not that that we're going to focus on um, right now for Peter. We'll take a page out of that American prophet, Perry Como, and accentuate the positive of Peter's response here. St. Paul reminds the Corinthians, no one, not Peter, not you, not I, can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so we'll talk about what was lacking in Peter's response next week. So we mustn't go overboard with accentuating the positive either, though, with Peter, because there is a danger in giving Peter too much praise and positivity. Next thing you know, we could be ascribing infallibility to Peter and his succession and building basilicas in his name and not so much in Christ's name. At least that's how Martin Luther and the folks from the 16th century Reformation saw them. In today's gospel text, it's actually Jesus, though, himself, who does kind of an end run around Peter's, call it brain power, his ability to comprehend his spiritual insights, whatever we may be tempted to call it and give Peter credit for it, the truth of the matter is God gets the glory. Says Jesus, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That's not where you got the correct answer, but from my Father in heaven. He granted you that epiphany, Peter. God opened your eyes, kind of like the scales that fell from St. Paul's eyes after his conversion on the road to Damascus. So it's that revelation that comes from heaven above. It's with respect to that confession of faith that Jesus says he will build his church on. He will build his church on the true confession that Peter made in Caesarea Philippi. And every individual who would seek entry into God's kingdom must also make that very same confession of faith, namely that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's both the person and the work of Christ which we confess. And so we confess Christ in his office of prophet. We confess Christ in his office of king. And finally, now the doozy, we confess Christ in his office as priest. Prophet, priest, and king. The priest was the doozy because Jesus, like priests do, offers the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. All right, that's fine so far. But not only is Jesus the priest, he is also, to his glory, the victim. 
the thing sacrificed. Jesus in his office of priest suffers crucifixion and sheds his innocent blood on that instrument of death, the cross, for all sin from the very beginning of the human race and his infinite worth as God incarnate ensures that that sacrifice is sufficient for all future generations of sinful men and women until the end of time. It was the prophet John the baptizer who first so clearly identified Jesus in his priestly role. You remember that. John pointed to Jesus coming to the baptismal waters of the Jordan River, and he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was a doozy because it tasks the Jews to still believe in him despite his publicly humiliating suffering on the cross. Only the theologian of the cross, to use Luther's other expression, only the theologian of the cross looking through the eyes of faith can see a badly beaten corpse hanging between heaven and earth and say, that's my Savior. Like our new banner over there, we preach Christ and him crucified. That's my Savior. That is my victory over sin, death, and whatever demons might come out of that deep well. And that confession takes a resurrection and a revelation from heaven to make good on it. It takes the Holy Spirit's ongoing power from on high now for us to live out that confession, that good confession, the confession we make today as well to our Master, Jesus of Nazareth, the confession that says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.